I'm speaking on our awesome God part five. Uh, I've been looking at that as one-off talks through, I suppose, probably through this summer period. And this time, this morning, I want to talk about the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Now, I want to just be very honest with you. On Tuesday, Tuesday for me was the day when I, I hadn't got a lot of other things booked in. So, uh, you know, seeing people on meetings or whatever. So on Tuesday, I, I felt, right, I'm going to get prepared for Sunday. I had done background reading. I'd... Uh, done some rough notes and I just picked up my pen because I still use a pen I don't use a computer sorry about that but I I picked up my pen to try and really get things in order for Sunday and I can honestly say I felt an overwhelming sense of human frailty an overwhelming sense how can I grasp this subject the holiness of God how can I speak on it what can I say about it And at first, I honestly felt very frustrated. I felt very frustrated. I thought, do I need another cup of coffee? You know, come on, John, wake up. You've got to get on with this today. And at first, I really did feel almost a bit sort of anxious and irritated. And then it really struck me that this is actually good. This is what it's all about. Actually, this is how it should be. You can't grasp the holiness of God. How can you speak on the holiness of God for half an hour on Sunday morning? And then obviously I prayed and I started, and I felt God said, yeah, you can, you can bring what's on your heart, but I want you to get it in proportion. I wanted to, I think God was realigning my own, um, perspective. That it's not just like, oh, I've got a day, let's get this sorted out for Sunday. How dare you to think like that about me, says <laughs> God. How dare you think about my holiness like that? And I just felt God really come close and and, and quite, um, in the best way, slightly scarily and say, you just be careful how you touch this. You be careful how you touch it. And so I want to do that and I want to share as best I can. It is with genuine trepidation and a genuine sense of inadequacy. I just want to spend half an hour looking at the holiness of God with you. Let's turn and look at a couple of magnificent scriptures. We're going to read one in the Old Testament and one in the New Let's read Isaiah 6 and verses 1 to 5. Quite short reading. If you can't find it quickly, and it's possible if you're not familiar with the Bible, perhaps you just listen to it, but but uh, it's there in roughly the middle of your Bible. Isaiah Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Let's look at another saint, many, many centuries later, and this one you will find easily, the last book in the Bible, Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. And here it's John writing. That was Isaiah. This is the Apostle John. 
Revelation chapter 4. Verse 1 again. And after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures covered with eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they are created and have their being. It's an awesome scriptures, aren't they? They are awesome. They're insights into heaven. They're insights into the very throne room of heaven. And in both cases, the writer has great difficulty describing what he's seeing because he's beyond human language and description. He's seeing the very centre of the power of the universe. He's seeing where God's throne is. But there is an amazing similarity. These two Incredible insights separated by thousands of years. And both of these men see creatures and beings beyond understanding and imagination. Beings that they find difficulty describing. Seraphim, cherubim and others, living creatures. But there is a great similarity. They're unceasingly calling something out. And they're not calling out loving, loving, loving. They're not calling out merciful, merciful, merciful. Though those things would be true, they are calling out, holy, holy, holy. That is the endless theme of heaven. That is a theme when Isaiah sees it. That is a theme in our terms, thousands of years later, when John sees it. And it's the theme this morning. Of course, it's outside of time and space. And it repeatedly goes on. We're told in Revelation, every time it happens, the, 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 the elders fall down and say, Worthy are you, O Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the keynote theme around the throne of heaven. So what is holiness? What is it we are talking about? that is so characteristic of God, so fundamental, so essential. Well, I think there's just two core aspects to understanding holiness. And I want to take a few minutes to look at them, and I want to apply it to us or to receive, I hope, from God something for us and challenging us. But let's, let's open our minds and our hearts for a minute. What is it about God that's holy? What is holiness? 
Well, one core meaning is this. Holiness means apartness or otherness. So there are two core aspects. Remember, this is just the first. Apartness or otherness. Jim Packer writes this. When scripture calls God or individual persons of the Godhead holy, as it often does, which it does often, the word signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe, adoration and dread. Everything that sets God apart from us and makes him an object of awe, adoration and dread to us. God's holiness is his differentness, his separation from us. The profound difference between the creator and every other creature made by the creator is an aspect of holiness. It's his transcendent majesty, his august superiority to everything else that exists. Every cherubim, every seraphim, every human being are on a different plane to God. And the holiness of God is something that somehow reminds us of that, his grandeur, his glory, his superiority. Now you get a sense of it all through scripture. We've looked at two magnificent passages, but you'll find it again and again. Here's Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. And that comes at, that's scripture. God is holy above all creatures, above his whole creation. We can never pull God down to our level. Here's a little phrase that I wish I'd thought of. I found it in a book. I can't even give the credit to the writer. But I like it. God is not a better version of ourselves. Just hold that. God is not a better version of ourselves. Like us, but gets it right all the time. That is not God. God is different. He is other. He is apart. He is holy. Did you see what's in Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6? That's not like you or me, really. The likeness of a man, maybe, but I don't know. It's something that... It's just light, and it's rainbows, and it's thunder, and it's lightning, and it's awful, in the best sense of the word awful. Awesome. And and it's God, and he's the creator, and no one made him, and he made everything else. And without him, there is nothing. That is God. He is so different. Isaiah 40 and verse 5. What's that say? Isaiah 40 verse 5. Is that on my... Screen or not? I'm sorry if I haven't put it on. Oh, it is. Praise the Lord. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Now, that's a good fundamental question that God asks us. He says, I'm not like you. Who are you going to compare me to? Who is my equal? Now, God's holiness has this effect on us. It exposes everything about us as so base and so feeble. And the effect is to make us feel like Isaiah, woe is me, and that's totally okay. In fact, that is the only appropriate reaction. That our grandest deeds, our cleverest thoughts, our best actions are pathetic against God. They're tawdry, they're meaningless almost. That what are we talking about? Who are we? Who am I? As Isaiah said, 
Now, there is that aspect of holiness, and it's right. And people like John and Isaiah just at one level just fall on their face and say, woe is me. Now, this idea that God's presence is so different, God is so different, comes out again and again when you begin to understand the word holiness. So, it's reflected in things that are linked to God. Now, it's going to be important to remember this, set apart or separate is part of holiness. Now, fundamentally, God is set apart from us and separate. But things that God touches and have the touch of God on them are holy. They are set apart and separate. God himself makes the ordinary extraordinary. He can make the common uncommon just by his touch. You get examples all through scripture. Moses, for example, meets something of the glory of God in the burning bush. And he's told, take your shoes off. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. Well, it's just dust. It's just desert soil. But it's holy because God's there. And then think of the tabernacle, the temple. It's made with ordinary materials. They were made with ordinary materials. And, uh, you know, they were just stones. They were just cloths and other things. But because they were for meeting God, because they were assigned by God, and in fact dictated by God how they made them, and because their purpose was to meet God. They became extraordinary buildings. Buildings totally separate from any other building on the planet. They were the place where you could touch God and meet the living God and experience his presence and learn his will. Now, in the new covenant, let me just say, there are no such buildings assigned by God. God did assign buildings. This is not like, this is a nice idea to have a holy place. And people have temples, and hey, we have temples. Yeah, listen, there were certain, in some ways, quite ordinary looking. The tabernacle was very ordinary looking, very dull looking, probably, from the outside. But God said, I'm there, and you will meet me there. And I'm assigning that as a meeting place. That made it holy and separate and set apart. Now, in the New Covenant, God does not say that. There are no such buildings set aside and assigned as holy by God. But, in the New Covenant, a very real group of very ordinary people, no different from other people in themselves, just like the desert soil around the burning bush was just desert soil, just like the badger skins and cloth and bits of wood of the tabernacle were bits of wood and cloth and badger skin. There are ordinary people, some of them are in this room, this room is perhaps nearly full of them, and there's millions more, ordinary people who God says, I set apart as my holy people. I touch them, and when the touch of God is on them, they're changed. They're changed, they're separate, they're different. They're different. These people are the Jesus people. They're the people who've put faith in Jesus Christ. They are those who are grafted in to him, the true vine. They are the new covenant people of God. They are a living temple. And there's nothing special. We're not super people any more than the desert around that bush was a super desert. But when God's there, it is all different. Do you understand? And the church is the holy temple of God because God turns up. And because God says... He takes your feeble body and he says, by my Holy Spirit, I will live in it. Your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's holy. God changes it. The The ordinary becomes extraordinary. The common becomes uncommon when God is there and associated with it. And God decrees how that will work. Now, it's not in our covenant about buildings. It's about a people who are a living temple. A place where the holy God dwells. And so the New Testament calls us a holy priesthood. And a holy nation. And we're not holier than thou. 
It's because God is holy and when he turns up, it changes everything. Amen? So one core aspect of holiness is separateness or set apart. Another core aspect, the other one really to make the full sense is absolute purity. Holiness means absolute purity. 1 John 1 and verse 5. I think it's on the screen, thank you. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Hear that and let it sink in. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is free from all impurity and imperfection. He has no imperfection at all. He cannot in any way be touched by sin. He hates sin. It is a contradiction of everything that he is. So God's holy purity makes any possibility of fellowship between him and an unholy thing, well, it's not possible. It makes it impossible. There is no way that a holy God, a pure God, can fellowship and interlink with something impure, unholy. Let's explore God for a moment and we'll come back to that. All God's actions are pure and righteous. Now, I'm interested to know what the effect... You let your own heart be open. Because what the effect of this is on your heart might be relevant to how you respond this morning. What we do even when we break bread. So I'm just going to tell you factually. All God's actions are pure and righteous. All of them. God always does what is right. He never makes a single mistake. He never does anything wrong. And God never acts out of an impure motive. He never acts out of an impure motive. There is no evil mixed in with God's goodness. He does not have a dark side. Forget Star Wars. He does not have a dark side. Here's another scripture. James 1 verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. There's no shadow in God. He doesn't have a shadow side. He's the Father of heavenly lights. God is good And God is pure. He is consistently good. He is consistently pure. He doesn't know how to be anything but good and pure. Keep receiving it. Because your own heart needs it. Because your heart might even kick at some of this. Not, not, hey, just, just be open and think. What, what, what's happening to me if you think, well, who dare you say that about God? Okay. Let's see where we go this morning. Because I think human beings have trouble with God's holiness. God is holy. He's never done anything wrong and he never will. He is good in all he does. He doesn't do anything but good things. The holy God is pure in his mind and will. Yet, this same God is not a distant God who is unaffected by everything that goes on on the earth. God is still fully in control of creation, even though it's a fallen creation. And the Holy Spirit is active in what is a sinful world. This is a mystery. He touches our lives, but he never compromises his holiness in any way 
through that constant contact. This is fascinating. How does he do that? I'm not sure I can fully satisfy your your questions, but I find it stirs my heart to think about it anyway. I think the image of light in the Bible is a very precious one. It is probably not purely an image. There is something about God that is light. And in the age to come, in the new heavens and new earth, we won't need a sun. God is the light. So it's not like God is like the sun. The sun is a bit like God. Is one way we could think about it. And if you think about the sun and its light, that is actually quite helpful for perhaps understanding a bit about this, this point. Because the sun can shine on beautiful flowers and stinking corruption, can't it? The sun can shine on a filthy, rotting bit of something or other, stinks. Or it can shine on a beautiful flower with a perfume. But the sun and its light are neither perfected nor polluted by what it shines on. The light of God's, of, of God's presence is the same. God can somehow, he doesn't disengage, he doesn't not notice, he's not, bothered, he's not distant, and yet he's not polluted by what happens. So just as the sun's light can look at something beautiful, but it doesn't add anything because the sun's light is radiance itself, just simply highlighting the beauty, so the sun's light looks on something putrid and corrupt. And it's not corrupted, the light's not corrupted. It just highlights the corruption and it maybe exaggerates it a bit by the heat and the light. But, but it's not corrupted by it at all. And so it is somehow in a mysterious way with God. And if you think of light itself, and I think it is a helpful thing to think about, light never gets sort of compromised by darkness. It never gets compromised. We're obviously using an analogy, but assume you have a good strong torch, but only a torch, and you're down in a deep dark cave. Now, you switch your torch on. Now, because it's limited, it will only go so far out in front of you. Obviously, that's a fact. But nevertheless, as far as the torch has power, the torch pushes out the darkness. You don't find that you get a blurred grey blob, that somehow the light and the dark sort of mix a bit, and it all gets a bit like, well, it's a little bit grey in here now. No, no, where the light goes, you get light. And, and it's the same if you think at night time, you know, you can have a big, dark, dark sort of, I don't know, forest or something. And in it is a little house and they've got their lights on and they pull the curtains back and a ray of light will come out of that house. And you could see it. Say you're lost in the forest, you know, you see the light and you find the place. It's not that a ray of dark comes into the house. They open the curtains and they're covered with dark. Oh, dear. We shouldn't have opened the curtains. Now we're all dark in here as well. That's not how it works. Light always wins. Light does not mix with dark and get grey. Light is light. It, dark is just not there when the light's on. There's no, it's, not, it's, not, it's not even a contest. Light. Dark's gone. Now, God is light. God is holiness. God is like the sun. He's, that's how God is. Don't think, oh, he's a mixture, he's a bit this, he's a bit that. And how can he dabble in those things without compromising himself? He doesn't compromise himself. He is always light, even when he's shining in the dark. Amen? This is our God. We need to understand he is pure. He is light. So God's holiness is his separateness and his purity. But what does that mean for us, for you and me? What on earth do we do with this when we're thinking about it? You see, a holy God, like I've been describing, is a threat to someone who is not holy. 
who's dark, or a mixture of dark and, you know, patchy, who's not in the light. He's a threat to sinners. Now, actually, God's purity and his separateness, his godness, is a real threat to every one of us. Every one of us is a sinner. None of us is pure and righteous in all we think and say and do. Now, before I go on, I would like to just go on, but I knew this morning when I was praying over this, I thought I can't just, I've got to pause for a moment here because of the culture we live in. We live in a culture where we have totally fooled ourselves into an attitude that we are not responsible for our own actions. That any evil we do is rather to do with our fate than our fault. So any evil we do comes from the fact that maybe our genes are like that, our DNA. Or maybe it's our circumstances. It's how we're brought up. We weren't educated properly. We weren't given enough food. We get, we get, you know, all the stuff that goes on, bad parenting and all the rest of it. That's why people do the wrong thing. So if they, if you could correct all that, they'd be fine. Well, I want to say to you that our sin is not our fate. It is our fault. Now, I'm not saying there is not some validity in the fact that our nurture and our nature may affect how we react. But I think in our honest moments, all of us know something like this. That in the case of any specific sin that any one of us has committed, we need not have done it. In a case of any... You say, oh, knife crime in the inner cities, young people, bad, no money, unemployed, no fathers. Yeah, fine, fine. That obviously contributed to an escalation. But there are young people in the inner cities who don't knife people. There are young lads who don't do it. There are people with alcoholic fathers who don't beat up other people. Somewhere in it all, every individual sin we commit, we make a choice. Somewhere in it all... We need not have done that sin. And you can't just say, it's not my fault. It's my fate. It's how I would. Now, there is some validity in trying to understand background and stuff. But again and again, I am conscious today that we throw away responsibility and guilt. And I'm telling you this morning, we are sinners. I'm a sinner. And the answer to the problem starts by recognising the problem. We live in a sin-sick world, I hasten to add, and the environment we live in is sinful, and indeed we often are abused by other people, and that is not pleasant, and that's part of the whole problem. But I don't think we can push it all away to that. In the end, any specific sin we commit, I would argue we choose to at that point, and we needn't have done it. And the Bible just wants to tell you, that's true. (laughs) God is holy, you are sinful. And if if we're ever going to get any hope or any answers, we've got to start by acknowledging that is true. I am unclean. I am a sinner. I am not worthy of coming into the presence of God. Now, our natural reaction to the holiness of God is, perhaps you've already felt it this morning, can be a fear can be a shock, maybe a despair. It can also be, and is quite commonly, resentment and rejection of God. 
Well, I don't want a God like that then. I don't want a God who never gets anything wrong and is holy and doesn't, you know, get, you know. And, and it can be. That is a very common aspect of human reaction. And our tendency then is to invent our own God that suits us. A God who lets us do what we like, who's pretty grey everywhere and quite sort of particularly suited for what I like to do and who won't judge me. But when we do that sort of thing, we are merely putting our head in the sand because God is holy. This is how he is. And in fact, if you stop and think about it almost philosophically, God who created everything would be like this, wouldn't he? I mean, there must be, it, it makes sense that God's holy in the sense of separate, apart and pure. And, you know, he sets every rule. It's him who's in charge. Yes, he is holy. And it's us who have to line up with him, not line him up with us. Amen? That's how it is. Don't let's put a head in the sand. How can we then, how can we, let's be honest with ourselves, how can we who don't even live up to our own standards who repeatedly make wrong choices, who compromise even our own standards, who have mixed motives, sinful thoughts, fleshly lusts, how can we ever know God? How can we ever meet this holy creator? How can anything be done? Well, here, as you will know, but maybe not all of you do, but even if you know it, don't go, I know the answer. Listen and be absorbed with the grace of it all and be thrilled with it. There is an answer because God is also loving and merciful. It's not the dominant thing. Indeed, everything about God is holy. His love is holy. His mercy is holy. His justice is holy. His wrath is holy. Every characteristic of God is holy. So holiness is fundamental. But God is actually a God of love and a God of mercy. And he's a wise God, as we saw last time. And in his wisdom... God has amazingly managed to reconcile, on our behalf, his holiness and his love. He's managed to do something which really is impossible but for God, of being able to bring sinful people into his glorious presence safely, and not only safely, but with joy and with hope and with with, with. Uh, a great sort of fruitfulness. So our unity with God ends up not just a toleration thing, but we can be his children, children of light. And we can live forever in his presence and enjoy him and just know him. It's incredible. A holy God, yes. Now God's done something that amazingly achieves that. And what he's done is reflected in what we're going to take in a few minutes, in ten minutes' time perhaps, the bread and the wine. He's done something amazing at the cross of Jesus Christ, in the death of Jesus Christ, his son. At the cross, God's holy justice and God's holy love were somehow amazingly reconciled on our behalf. And it's at the cross, when you understand it, that your shock and fear at God's holiness turns to worship and awe. And and your resentment turns to love. Oh, God! You love me. And your rejection of God turns to gratitude. God, thank you. Thank you, holy God, that you're my father. Thank you that you've made me holy. The self-sacrifice of God's son, Jesus Christ, on the cross at Calvary is amazing. Don't let any modern or ancient theologian rob you of the truth 
of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. God knew what he was doing on the cross. He was not giving us an example of self-sacrifice. He was not trying to provoke us to love him by showing how very much he'd be prepared to love us. Some of those things were a bit true. But fundamentally, Romans 3, we're not going to read it, Romans 3 very clearly explains to us what happened on the cross, particularly around verses 25, 26, that area. You can look at it for yourself, but I'm not going to read it this morning. It's not my main focus. I just want to explain it. The language is very precise in Romans 3, 25, 26. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be a propitiation, it says in some translations, or a sacrifice of atonement for us. What that means is Jesus was a sacrifice that bore God's holy wrath against sin so that God was able to be favourably disposed towards us. He did not in any way compromise his holiness. His holiness was totally dealt dealt with, sorry, totally dealt with the sin problem, justly and completely at the throne, at the judgment throne of heaven, it's dealt with. And God is therefore able to be favourably disposed, propitious towards us. He is satisfied in his holiness and his wrath, and so his love can be extended to us. Jesus Christ became a man. He took on humanity. He bore our sins in his own body on the cross. And as a result, God is both just and the justifier of those sinners who come to him. He's just in dealing with all sin, but he's the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Justify means he makes us holy. Just as if I'd never sinned, someone once said, which is not a bad summary of it. We can be justified through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. There is a beautiful verse, I know I often use it, but I think it sums it up wonderfully. It's 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. I think it's on the, on the screen, thank you. This is about Jesus Christ. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness, you could even say the holiness, of God. Now that is awesome. That is awesome. Who did it? God. You couldn't do that. Nobody could. God's plan was this. This is a God action. Only God in his godness could do this, could reconcile the whole business. But he did. God made Jesus Christ, who had no sin, sinless man, second Adam, whatever. He made him to be sin for us. So that in him, in Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. It is about clothing. This is a biblical picture. It's almost, again, more than a simple picture, but it is a picture. That it's like we're dressed in filthy clothes that have got to be burnt up, and they have to be burnt up on the person. And these filthy clothes are put on Jesus Christ and the wrath of God destroys them and burns them up. But because it's Jesus, he is not ultimately burnt up. He had no sin. And when he had borne our sin, he himself rose from the dead. And now we are given the clean clothes of Jesus, the white robes of Jesus. So our filthy robes are removed, destroyed on him. And we are clothed in the white robes of God's righteousness. In Christ. If we're in Jesus. 
by saying, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Saviour, Jesus is my everything. My only hope, we sang, it is indeed. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. Amen? It is awesome stuff. And it's how we come from unholiness to holiness through Jesus Christ. We get united with him through faith by accepting the truth of what this glorious gospel says. The glorious good news is that sinners can become saints through Jesus Christ. We can have God's purity, his righteousness, imputed to us. Imputed to us. That means like putting the clothes on. Given to us through Jesus Christ. We are set apart for God. The other bit of holiness. We belong to God through Jesus Christ. We become God people. God's people. Holy people through Jesus Christ. We have purity and we have separateness. We belong to God. We are set apart for him through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 4, which isn't on the screen, tells us God has made us, listen to this, holy and blameless in his sight. How about that? You say, oh, I can't be like that. You are. But I'm only a scraggy old me. I know I'm not holy. Well, there was only scraggy old dust, wasn't it? And it became holy because what God was doing there. For Moses. Remember that bit about half an hour ago? (laughs) So you don't look at me blank. So you are made holy through Jesus Christ. It says, Ephesians 1 verse 4, you are holy and blameless in his sight. Is that good news? I'm very pleased that this morning I am holy and blameless in the sight of God. That is good news. And that is done through Jesus Christ. Now, We are to be what God has made us to be. Let's look at Ephesians 5, verses 8 and 9. Let's read it together. It's on the screen. You don't read it together with, you know, I'll read it. You look at it. You were once darkness, right? That was clear. You were darkness. So was I. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. This is the Christian gospel linked to the Christian life. We are made holy, we are to be holy. You were once darkness, now you are light in the world. This isn't, if if you behave well, you will be light. If you are really good boys and girls for about 20 years, I'll consider you light. This is not what it says. Now you are light in the Lord. Amen? I'm delighted with this. It really blesses me. And I knew it before this morning as well. It's wonderful. You are now lighting the Lord. Now, sitting here. All your scraggy old bits and bobs, you're now lighting the Lord. Now, live as children of light. That's the command. It's a command based on a powerful truth. Be what you are. Live out what God's called you to be. Walk as Jesus walked, is what it says in 1 John. Walk as he walked. Let the Holy Spirit make you holy. (laughs) Let him change you from one degree of glory to another. Now, the Bible is very clear about this. Here's another scripture. It's going to go on the screen. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 to 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, the reason I'm laughing is, that is ludicrous if God hasn't done something for us. How can God say, just be holy then? 
I mean, what, what are we talking about? You be holy in all you do. I mean, I use this analogy in the foundation course, so you've probably all heard it. But basically, it would be like an eagle saying to a pig, fly because I fly. Well, fat lot of use that is. An eagle flaps up to a pig and says, wait, pig, fly. I can fly. Well, if a pig takes that seriously, he's going to be a very troubled pig, isn't he? He's going to need psychiatric treatment. If a, if a pig tra- treats that, say, right, okay, eagle, yes, yes. And off he goes. Look, hang on a minute. That, it can't be that God comes up to people like sinners and just says, be holy because I'm holy. Go on. How can I be holy? So actually, there's something changed in me, isn't there? There's a holy spirit in me. He's given me wings. Better news. What is it? John Bunyan's thing? Again, it's in the foundation course. Uh, Run, John, and live, the law demands, but gives me neither legs nor arms. Better news the gospel brings, bids me fly, and it gives me wings. It's John Bunyan. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly, but it gives me wings. So it changes me. The Holy Spirit comes into me and he changes me. And I can walk after the Spirit and I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh like I used to if I walk in the Spirit. As I walk after the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's a fruit that's going to appear, the fruit of light. I'm different. When you're saved, you're different. Something's happened to you. You're holy. You're set apart for God. You've been made pure. Now you're going to be living differently. You're going to be living purer. He set you apart to live for him. So there is, in the New Testament, a distinct and definite call to holiness. And I must admit, we struggle sometimes. How do we apply this? It's often made Christians very legalistic. But we can't avoid it because it's slightly hard to handle. So let's put one up. Here it is. It's already up. This is 2 Corinthians 6. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. That's why I said to you earlier, we are the temple of God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. That's what God does for us. That's what we are. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. Next screen. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons. I think it probably goes on to the next one. Thank you. My sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So it's all about relationship. It's about what we are as sons and daughters. Then look at this powerful ending to that quote. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. There you go. Simple. (laughs) Simple and profound, isn't it? You are children of light, be children of light. And you must get it the right way round or you'll be like the pig trying to fly. You must realise it's out of what God's done in you. You must let the Spirit of God lead you. This is all about Holy Spirit led. It's about loving Jesus. It's about relationship. It's about wonderful grace and, and, and wallowing in his grace was what I was going to say. So I'll say it. It's about wallowing in his grace. But it's also about understanding that since you have these promises, which is the bit that I think we need just to get hold of, since you have these promises... Oh, it's me up there. Great. I don't want those verses yet. Since you have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. You are not supposed to live like any old scruff who doesn't know Jesus. 
Not because you're arrogant, not because you're holier than thou, but because you've been touched by God. You're not supposed to live like the world. You are different. And it will and should show. It may not show in the way you dress, though sometimes it might. But it will show again and again. What does holiness look like? I think that's a brilliant question, even though I asked it. What does holiness look like? Oh, I know the answer, so I'm going to tell you. Well, you can think about the answer. Think about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the most holy person ever walked on the planet. So, think, just read the Gospels. Think about Jesus. What does holiness look like? Because sometimes you think, whatever culture you're in, people have ideas. Well, holiness is men have very short hair. I'm fine. And, you know, wear sensible clothes. I'm fine again. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't know, tithe and do something else. And put a load of rules in. That's what holiness looks like. John Groves on a good day. No, no. It can't be that, can it? Heaven forbid. But, no, you see what I mean? You get into all sorts of funny messes. What does holiness... It must be being like Jesus. Mustn't it? Being a man and a woman who's like Jesus. So it's not to do with having a beard and long hair, because the ladies have a bit of a disadvantage there. So it, it must be something in that area. Have a think about it. Think about it. We're meant to be holy, We're meant to be children of light. We're meant to be obviously holy and separate from the world around us. But what is that separation really going to mean? It's good. I love it. I'll leave you thinking about it. We're going to end by looking at a scripture, beautiful scripture in Jude. So we will have that up. And then we're going to break bread and just worship for a few minutes. Here's this lovely almost sort of prayer. Well, it is a prayer, sort of doxology. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. I, I want that up there. Keep that up there. Let's all stand. Let's just stand. Put your Bibles down, your notebooks down. We're going to read this together. We're going to read it together. And then the band can come up. In fact, the band can come up now before we read it. You guys come up. Thank you. Because we're going to worship after this. And then we're going to break bread during our worship. Just just look at this. Just while they settle, before, before we read it together. Just look what it is. This is Jesus who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. And if you're like me, you know you've got a few faults, but he is able to do it. Do you know Ephesians 5 tells us that, and it's used in terms of husbands and wives, if you remember, Jesus loves the church and made her holy. Isn't that beautiful? He gave himself up for her to make her holy. That is a phrase. You're part of the church, aren't you? Jesus gave himself up for you to make you holy. And he's going to do it. He's done it. He's going to work it out. And so he is cleansing us. I would say in summary, through the Spirit and the Word. He is cleansing us through the Spirit and the Word. He's working on us to present her, us, to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless in his sight. And he'll do it. 
You're already holy in the eyes of God and he's going to make sure you are without wrinkle. <laughs> oh, blemish. Let's read this together. It's Jude's... Let's read it. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Hallelujah. Lord, we love you. We thank you. This is truth. You are able to keep us and to present us without fault, with great joy in your presence, without wrinkle and blemish. We love you, Lord Jesus, that you gave yourself up for us to make us holy. Oh, thank you, Jesus. We worship you together. We praise you together. We thank you together. Amen.